Hey, I'm Bet Sussman, and you are listening to Talking Blues. I always wanted to um, be a host. I wanted to have a radio show. I had a radio show in college. Well, this is an attainable goal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is, actually. It um, is. With all the things that you do, um, I'm curious as to if I just met you on the bus or on the train and said, what do you do? How would you describe what you do? I'm a musician. I'm a keyboard player first and a singer and an arranger and a musical director. (laughs) (laughs) Songwriter. It's not an easy conversation. (laughs) It's not a quick one-two conversation. Um, So I was thinking about this on the way over here. When I heard you last year at the Blues Foundation Mm -hmm. benefit, your your playing struck me. Like I just, there's something about your, I don't know if it was the tone of your playing or what you played. I mean, I think it's both. But it made me think, you know, sometimes you you have guitarists and you, 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 you can tell by the first note who that guitar player is. I'm not sure if that's necessarily true with piano players, but every piano player has a different style. Do you know what your style is? Could you like You know, I don't I don't really think I don't really think I have a particular style. I mean, I'm just I'm a uh, I play from my gut, you know, pretty much. So, uh, the reason I don't say I have a style is because I've also been a, a freelance musician for a really long time. I mean, for, since the jump. So, I've played a ton of gospel. I've played a ton of pop. I've played a ton of rock and roll, country music. I started out playing classical, so uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I can define. I don't think I can really define my playing, which maybe you know, could be a shortcoming. <laughs> well, I think it's done you pretty good so far. <laughs> yeah, it's never too late. <laughs> never too late for a shortcoming. Um, you started off in classical music, studying at mm-hmm. like the age of four, four and a half, or something. Yeah. Did you connect to music immediately? I did, I did. I had a, um, I had a very good ear. My sister was a, my sister was two years older than I was, and she had started studying. And she would come home from her lessons and play, and I would just sort of mimic her. I would just sit down and play what she just played by ear. So I was, I was, you know, I definitely had a, uh, a somewhat of a, you know, a gift. You know, I wasn't just like a hard worker at a young age. You know, I sort of, um, but it, music was always in my house. You know, my mother, my mother had, I took my first five piano lessons, as a matter of fact, with the teacher that my mother studied with when she was a kid. And then she died. I always thought that perhaps I killed her. Five <laughs> lessons with me and that's enough. She's dead. But um, yeah, so that's, so, I, you know, I, I started studying at a very young age, so I, I suppose, you know, I had a gift, which is why I think they, they didn't have to push me, which is, I, I, you know, I wanted to play, I was into playing, and, you know, in those days, you don't just come up with these ideas on your own, so my grandfather lived with us at the time, and so he suggested that I, too, go to the lessons as well as my sister, so we used to take a train from my house to Far Rockaway to this old German woman's studio, and, and so I, you know, I, I definitely took a liking to it, and, and I was good, so... And did you immediately connect with music? Like, there's a difference between mimicking your sister and being able to play it, but just being moved by music. Yes, yes. And, you know, um, because I listened, we listened to, there was always music playing in my house. So whether it was classical music, 
It was either classical music or it was Barbra Streisand and Vicky Carr. Until, of course, I started having my own records. But when I remember, like, when I was a kid, the record player was in the den. I listened to whatever was in that cabinet, and that was classical music, Barbra Streisand, Vicky Carr, or, you know, people like that, Frank Sinatra, and, and, you know, so I just played what was there. So clearly, I was drawn to music because I just liked whatever was there. And, and when you got into your own music, what were you getting into? What was... Uh, Aretha. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Youngbloods, um, the Box Tops. I mean, I you know I start I came up in a I came up in the I think the golden age. I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, I I complain about being uh, getting older, but in reality, I'm so blessed to be the age I am because I feel like I came up in like the golden age of music where, um, you know, Laura Nero. Uh, Joni Mitchell, Aretha Franklin, Leon Russell, that whole Mad Dogs and Englishman, Joe Cocker scene, you know, Leon Russell ended up being one of my great influences. So, um, yeah, I just started, I was just drawn to music and I just got 45s and don't ask me how I did that, I don't know. I'm sure I was too young to go out to a store and buy my own 45s, but I did, I got them and and um, yeah, I was always I was really drawn to music. And did you start playing like with your classical background, which you continued throughout high school, I believe? Yeah. Did you start? I, playing I pop- continued past high school. My once I left when I was studying, I was at Oberlin College, and I only lasted a year there. But I heard about a teacher in New York that I wanted to study with a guy named Sanford Gold, and I just wanted to study. I wanted to play jazz, and he wouldn't he wouldn't teach me unless I continued my classical studies. <laughs> So I did. So you you grow up playing classical music, right? You, you listen to rock and pop songs, mm-hmm. and you have this now love for jazz. I didn't really develop the love for jazz until I went to college. Okay, and what? How did that start? Because I met a guy named Chris Brown, who was uh, unfortunately has since passed, um, but he was a trumpet player. And when my mom went with me for my audition, Chris sort of greeted me. And made me feel very welcome. And he, I ended up getting into Oberlin. I, I applied to three schools, and Oberlin was the only one I wanted to go to. And so I, I got into the conservatory there. And Chris was just sort of a mentor to me. And he was, you know, he was really into jazz as a trumpet player. So he would take me. We would go into Cleveland and start listening to going to hear music like Herbie Hancock, Freddie Hubbard. Um, so that's really where I got my education. Was was there? And also, I had started to. I think I had also started to listen to Bill Evans, which was great because my teacher in college was also really into Bill Evans. I, I for for going to a college for a for a beautiful great music school for a year, and knowing that I, I, I didn't belong there. It was a conservatory, and though I got in there on a classical audition, I was not conservatory material. I was no longer. That was not my focus. That's not where I was. The direction that I was going, I was definitely going into a more um, uh, pop music arena. I had started to write songs like in high school. In my, my senior year in high school, I started to write songs. Were you in bands then? No, I never played in bands. I, I didn't play in bands until college and after college. I never, incredibly enough, I missed that. When I hear all my friends 
talk about all the bands they played in when they were in high school and they played there and they played in this bar illegally and this. I didn't have any of that. I played in the chorus or some, you know, like the choruses or the shows or something. Not, not even the shows. I played for the chorus. I was not in the, uh, in the arena of, uh, in the other arena. And did you know, like, was music going to be your future? Well, I figured because I was going, yes, that I was such a, I was a really good classical pianist that, you know, I was going to go to a music school. Whether or not, you know, that was going to be the be-all, end-all, I don't really think that I became a, I, my route to becoming a classical music, uh, becoming a, a, a pop or jazz musician happened when I met Sanford Gold. He turned me into a professional musician. The guy that I stu that I heard about when I was in Oberlin, I came back. My parents were totally cool with me leaving after a year. I just I didn't belong there. I needed to play, you know. I wasn't I wasn't there to get a music. I wasn't trying to become a teacher. I was a performance major anyway. So I just thought that I was just unhappy there. It was too cold. It was cold <laughs> and wet in Ohio. So. And lots of snow, I presume. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Um, when you said what well, your mentor um, made you into a professional musician, yeah. tell me that process. Tell me what happened. Or well, what... he Sanford Gold was his name, and he was old school. Used to live with Art Tatum, part of, you know, part Charlie Parker. He's part of that that era, and um, he was the music director for the Ed Sullivan show. He was Eartha Kitt's music director. Oh. And he just took no bullshit. He wouldn't take, you know, he, you know, it's like, don't waste my time. Don't come here unprepared. I, 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 we won't, I won't teach you. It's not, you know. And he just, he A, also, he universalized music for me. Um, you know, he made me realize that I could play in more than one genre. You know, the you know, there's a there's a big fear of the unknown when you you know when you start breaking into other genres. Mm -hmm. You know, you think, oh my God, that's something. I mean, even even when I was at when I was a kid, when I was in high school, I never dreamed that I would be a recording musician. That to me was an elevation of music that was unattainable to me. Until of course, I find myself in New York City, and I'm in the studio and I'm recording and I'm playing and it's like, oh. And then I find myself on a recession with, you know, say Rick Murata or somebody who I listened to who I never thought I'd ever be able to attain that goal, you know, that goal, that, that level of professionalism. And all of a sudden after, you know, as, as time is going on, I'm recording with these people. And, and so, um, oh, <laughs> yes, this is Dean Martin. And Dean yeah. has just joined us in the interview. Dean Martin has joined us in the interview. Um, Dean is a beautiful cat. Yeah. You get out of school, now you're thinking, I'm going to be a musician. Yes. And I, uh, I move home, and I, my parents agreed to pay for piano lessons with Sanford Gold, the great Sanford Gold. And um, I started to study, and you know he, like I said, he. Uh, I previously said that he he universalized music for me. He would take, he would con he he made me continue my classical studies, but he would also simultaneously say I'd be working on a Bill Evans piece, and I would I would be like transcribing a Bill Evans solo, and I'd be playing this one passage, and he would say, "Okay, turn to your Brahms Rhapsody, page fifty-two, the third stanza, the third and the fourth bar." 
and it would be the same exact thing that I just played in the Bill Evans thing. So he kind of he universalized music with me. He showed me where how it all crosses over, and you know, jazz is not all that special, and this is not all that special. It all comes from one place. There's twelve notes, and it's how you put them together. And um, he did, did you find that easy? Like, I was, did. Okay. I did. And then I started, and then I went to. Um, I lived on the Upper East Side, and I went to a club that was a few blocks away to see if I could get a job, like, playing piano somewhere, somehow there. And, and this was a club that was, uh, the, the um, Elephant's Memory used to hang out there. It was called The Home Bar. Elephant's Memory, which was John Lennon and Yoko Ono's band. Right. I'm ta- we're back in the 70s now. And um, so the guy there, Kenny Gorka, who I ended up knowing my, almost my entire adult life, he just passed a few years ago, but um, worked in the, in the business, in the club business all those years. In any case, Kenny gave me a job playing and singing during the dinner hour. So, you know, he'd pay me 20 bucks or something, or 10 bucks in dinner. And what were you playing at that point? I probably was playing songs like When Sunny Gets Blue... Sunday kind of love, um, nothing too deep. Bonnie Raitt, probably some Bonnie Raitt songs, probably some Neil Young songs. Did it come easy to you? Like this is, is this like you performing on your own like one it of the first kind time? Of, it kind of did come easy. It, it wasn't, I don't remember it being difficult. I mean, I just went for it. So, and he gave me a job, and so I did it. And then through that, I met many, many, many musicians that came in and out of there. And of all kinds, blues musicians, rock and roll musicians, folk musicians. And I ended up starting to play with them and meeting a lot of songwriters and hanging out with the Elephant's Memory crew and meeting people through them. And in those days, there were um, just tons of clubs everywhere in New York City. And I just... You know, I just became a player that played with a lot of different songwriters. I became a sort of, you know, fair... I'm not going to... I don't want to blow my own horn that I was in, de, in demand, but I played with a lot of the... You know, in those days, we used to play, you know, five nights, six nights a week, and a couple, maybe sometimes a couple of nights, a couple of times a night in different clubs. Without... Not blowing your own horn, but what do you think it was about you that attracted these other songwriters to work with you? I don't know. I guess they liked the way I played. You know, I guess I had a... Um, I've always... I think that one of, one of my gifts is being able... is being a really good supportive musician. Like, I've worked with a ton of singers. Singers seem to like me. You know, it's, it's, so you always had that. It's kind of an art of playing with singers. You know, it's different than just playing by yourself and play, and supporting a singer. And I think that I was lucky enough to hook up with a lot of great singers and and got a great got great education from that. You know, I got to play with uh, her. You know, Sissy Houston, like in the early '80s. Um, yeah, and that's a fascinating story. Can you share that? Oh, How that's a happened? fascinating story. That's really a fascinating story. Um, my boyfriend at the time was her guitar player. He too is dead. God, everybody's dead in my life. You're my only friend that's alive now, Marco. Um, so I used to go to the gigs. I used to go to their gigs. Um, and one night they were playing down at a club called 7th Avenue South and down in the village. Not there anymore, but it was a great R&B club. 
And, um, and Sissy barely gave me the time of day ever. She didn't know. I was like her guitar player's, you know, girlfriend who hung around and drank, you know. That's, that's what she knew of me, right. really. And um, so one night, her piano player is late. He's a big a church piano player, this guy, and he was late. And she's like, and the place is packed. And Sissy's like, these people didn't come here to see him. These people came to see me. We're going on. We're just going to give it another five minutes, and then if he's not here, we're going on. They came to see me. We're going to go on. And, like, we're all thinking. I mean, like, Frank and, and the bass player's like, God, I'm thinking to myself, geez, she's the kind of singer that could go on with that, with just a piano player, but without a piano player. Right. You know, because... You know, with all respect, and Frank was not the greatest guitar player. <laughs> and um, so they do a song, kind of bad. It's not good. They do another song. And and the boys are like, now Frank and Chico are saying, Sissy, Sissy, get, get that up here. She's like, who? Who? She didn't even know, probably didn't even know my name. And um, finally, after two songs, and it was not happening, because it was basically, it was a percussionist. It wasn't even a drummer. It was guitar, bass, and a percussionist. And so they said, Sissy, telling you, get bed up here. There was no music, but I had heard the show so many times that I knew some of the material. So she goes, okay, that's, this is showbiz. So she brings me up, and then she calls, like, the two of us, which I was able to play, and then there's a piano solo in there, and it was like... Oh my goodness, like, you know, she can play it, she can solo, and and I played one more song, and the piano player comes in and nearly knocks me off the piano bench. So at the end of the night, you know, I was summoned to the dressing room, and she just said, thank you so much, I enjoyed singing with you so much tonight, and um, I hope we get to do this again. Thank you, I enjoyed it, it was a thrill for me, and I hope we get to do it again. Well, like, a few weeks later, like in the next couple of weeks, the church piano player had, was like in church and had this accident where he was playing organ and he fell off the piano bench and broke his wrist. And that's how I got the gig. And that gig pretty well changed your life. That became my gig and that pretty much changed my life because Whitney was one of her background singers and her brother Gary. I mean, I know, I know Whitney and Gary since they were teenagers. And, um, I mean, I played with Sissy for quite some, you know, for a number of years in the 80s. And Sissy had started, I mean, Whitney had started to perform. And, um, but she didn't want to break, you know, I, like, music directed a couple of shows for her. I ended up being Sissy's musical director. Um, it wasn't great for the relationship with Frank, but it didn't, you know, it didn't devastate us. Okay. Can you tell me, I mean, I have an idea of what a musical director does. But you have spent a lot of your career being a music director for, um, in the beginning with Godspell on the road, and also with Sissy and Whitney and Bette Midler. What is what was your function as a musical director? Um, well, there's a few functions. There's um, okay, so I was your piano player. Um, Sometimes I would help. I would help find material. I'd help, you'd help find material. Sissy was one of those people who always came in with great material for her. She knew how to pick songs from the whitest catalog there was and sing the shit out of them. I mean, like she would come in with these Neil Sedaka songs 
and uh, Neil Diamond, Neil Sedaka, and I'm like, what? And sure enough, it would they would be brilliant songs. She was just she was really she really took control of her own um, repertoire. And if they didn't work, can you say something to say, I don't know if this piece works? Yeah. I mean, but they usually worked. Okay. And then she would include me in, in duets. I did a, a couple of duets with her singing. I remember we did a song called um, uh, Paradise. Uh, Almost Paradise. Knocking on heaven's door. I don't remember that. Yeah, that was, we did that. Anyway, so that was um, that was Sissy. Um so that's one of the one of the one of the jobs sometimes is is playing, finding material, coming up with background parts, arranging, arranging background vocals. Yeah, I mean, are you I, actually hiring the musicians? Hiring musicians, yes, hiring musicians. Um, in some cases, arranging songs. In some cases, bringing finding the right arrangers for songs. Working like with, for instance, with Bet. Um, perhaps we would have Arif Martin do uh, an orchestration for us for a song, for a tour. And I would work closely with Arif on the, on the arrangement, finding the key. If I'd call him up and say, can we change the key? Can we change this? The flute part's not working or blah, 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 blah. So that's basically my job. My job is to, um, and also put the show together, put, you know, I, with Bet. Uh, well, there were some. There are many departments when you're, you know, when you're dealing with an artist of the, you know, like Bet and like Whitney. There's like there's the music department, there's the choreography department, there's there's many different departments. But with Bet, we always built the shows together. Like myself, the choreographer, the stage manager, the the writer, the joke writer. We all pretty much wrote the show together. So I I kind of think that maybe that over exceeded the music director position because we were also part of the creative team. We weren't brought in afterwards, or like, here's the show, let's get a music director now. I was always, I was there from the beginning. Um, but that's, that's basically it, is finding the band, finding the singers, arranging, arranging vocals, rehearsing vocals. So how different was it to be a musical director for Godspell versus, and that being your first musical director gig? to being a musical director for somebody like Sissy Houston or Whitney Houston? Well, it was, a, it was tremendously different because Godspell was already done. All I had to do was basically play, and I mean, they had already... I mean, I came in, I took over for somebody. So this was a company that had already been music directed and had been rehearsed, and the show had been developed and staged. So I basically just came in at this point and played the show and conducted it, you know, conduct the band... That's okay. that's another part of it is conducting the band. Right. Smaller bands, larger bands. I mean, with Bet, I had a huge band. So you didn't grow up in your teenage years playing in a band. No. And you just kind of got into playing with bands in university or in college years. So you didn't have a more, lot. More after. More after. My bands in college, I, I really pretty much, the extent of the of my band were, I, I pretty much was on, still on my own. I still was playing coffee houses and playing by myself, sometimes playing piano, sometimes playing guitar. You know, I could play all those Neil Young songs. They had three chords, so I could play them all. So. But the, the, the becoming a musical director with that background, was that intimidating? Was that difficult? It just, like you, you make it sound so simple, but I don't know how simple that is to do. 
Well, I, I think it was, I think I'm, I think I've, I was always assertive and I always had a certain amount of confidence, which I think is important. You know, um, growing up, also coming in as a player, like as a young player in New York, I am a female in a male dominated business. As far as say, like, let's take me out of the music director world now. Let's, I'm Bette Sussman, the session player. Right. Um, you know, I'm in a male dominated business. I'm generally speaking the only woman on this recording, on the date. I'm like the only woman. Right. And so there was a certain amount of not bravado, just confidence that I felt I needed to come in with in order to bypass a step. You know, if I act like I'm confident, then maybe they'll they'll, they'll believe I am. I'm I am I am what what I what she's coming. I'm coming off like I'm like I know what I'm doing. Maybe she maybe she actually does. So it's a little bit of a psychology thing as well. But I think for me that's. That's how I sort of, you know, bypassed that what seems to be a very sad story. People always want to hear that very, had the difficult story of being a woman in a man's world and how difficult it was. And it wasn't, it, it, it's more, it's probably more difficult now than it was coming up, honestly. But was it a conscious thing or is that just the nature of your personality? I think a little bit of both. I think it's the nature of my personality. I think I'm outgoing. Um, I'm a you know I can I'm aggressive, and so you know I think the nature of my personality was that. And I also think, you know, I subconsciously felt I needed to get I needed to have a little bit more of an edge, in order to not be ju- judged as a good player for a girl. You know, I never wanted to be a good player for a girl. Okay, so you, you just talked about the session work that you did. How did that begin? Because I presume being a studio session musician, you have to be good. So it starts with that. Well, I'll tell you how it started. It actually started through some of the guys that I played on the tour with, the, the Godspell tour. They were working for chapel music. They were doing sessions for chapel um, publishing, mm-hmm. and they brought me in to do demos. I became like the demo, like part of the demo band up at Chapel Music, playing, recording demos for writers. So that's that's really where I where I started. Okay, so studio work is a different animal, I would presume, than playing live. Did that come to you easily? The the studio work. Yeah. Um. I guess. I mean, I, I, I don't think I was as good. I don't think I was as good as it as I am now. I don't. I think I wasn't. I, I think I, I'm. I've. I've. Much more of an editor now, and I'm much more. Uh, um. I, I use much more economy in my choices in my playing now. I probably, if you put up a recording of me playing today and a recording of me playing 25 years ago, I probably play half as much now than I played <laughs> 25 years ago. But um, I think it's just a process of, you know, of learning about, you know, listening in the studio. It's a, it's a different, you know, it is different. It, it is different, but it's all about listening and, you know, it's about listening as much as it is playing. And, that, you- takes, and that takes time. That takes maturity. 
I think that as a, I was able to get in as a good, because I was a talented player, not necessarily a mature player. I was a young, talented player. Did you know you were good? Um, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I guess I, I guess I was, you know, I mean, I, I was doing stuff, so yeah. I wasn't going to question, question it. But I question it to this day, you know. Have I st- am I still fooling them? Oh, fool them again. You know, I still I still have that fool. I mean, I had to the, that overly aggressive like make up for my 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 sex, the fact that I'm a woman, that I'm younger. You know, I, I overextended that whereas now I now I question, you know, I probably am more insecure now than I I know I, I have more. I probably have more insecurities now that I'm more mature than I had then. I don't think. I think, but I think that's true with everybody. Yeah, Anything you is do too. is like when you're young and you know lacking maturity, you're just like a bull in a china shop. You know, you just you just do it right. without thinking about thinking as much. Did you ever set goals for yourself? Like you've accomplished so much. So I wonder if at any point you said, "Well, you know what? By this point, I want to do this." Or... I, I'm thinking about setting some goals now. <laughs> I was just thinking this morning, I said, I think I need some new goals. That's funny. I, I honestly said today, you know, because I've, all, because I've never, like, for instance, I never, except for one point in my life, did I set out to be a recording artist. In, 19, in, the, in 1980, coming at, at the late 70s, I had worked with, I had met um, an, a brilliant, a couple of brilliant musicians that kind of, I guess, kind of discovered me at a club. This guy named Dick Wagner. From who, the Alice Cooper Band and Lou Reed, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. That was, you know, he was a monster guitar player. Peter Gabriel, you know, wrote all these, inc- you know, all these iconic rock songs, Only Women Bleed, You and Me, School's Out for Summer. You know, really a br- brilliant, brilliant writer and a brilliant musician, brilliant, brilliant player. And, you know, he really dug my playing and we ended up having a little romance and he was working with Michael Kamen. I'm sure you know who he was. Actually, I don't. Oh, Michael Kamen was a brilliant, brilliant piano player and composer and orchestrator and arranger. Um, Classical. He was like the guy that did all of the big classical, like when bands played with orchestras. Michael Kamen did all of that. Right. He was the guy, the most respected guy. Aerosmith, Pink Floyd. He did, I mean, if you look him up after, you'll see, you know, his um, bio is quite extensive. Anyway, they were both working with Tim Curry at the time. And um, they were starting to write a record, um, which I ended up doing. I ended up playing on. It was the... Um, it was called Fearless. Right. I do the rock was the big hit off of that, uh, off of that. So I did that. I did the record, and I got a, and you know here I am. Now this is still we're, I'm talking about the late seventies, so I'm I'm young. I'm not even I'm not thirty yet, and um, and all of a sudden I find myself in the studio with Bob Kulick, great rock guitar player. Dick Wagner, a great rock guitar player. Charles Collins, one of the great Philly drummers. 
Bob Babbitt was the bass player and David Sanborn was the saxophone player. And a guy named Michael Chudin was the other keyboard player. So, you know, here I am, this young buck, <laughs> this young, young woman in her 20s in the studio with the greatest musicians of our time, the greatest studio musicians, you know. Um, and, that, and that led to other projects, like... Um, other other artists that that Dick was producing, so I find myself up at Longview Farms, the great famous you know famous recording studio up in Massachusetts, and there I am up there with Rick Morata. Now now I'm playing with Rick Morata, who at one time was like was an icon to me. He was a, he was one, he was one of those musicians that he was a recording musician. I could never attain that, and now I'm in the studio. You know, and now all of a sudden I'm turning his music upside down and challenging him and playing jokes on him. And, you know, I'm kind of, you know, um, the kitten with the cats. So, I, you know, I was, I was, it's, it's a real combination of being, um, being good at what I did and being at the right place at the right time. You know, you, that adage is not false. It is absolutely true that I... I'm not negating the fact that I was talented, but I also happened to be in the right place at the right time on a number of occasions. I, I, I ended up with her. I ended up at that, you know, at 7th Avenue South. I got to play with Sissy Houston. I mean, you know, and to this day, you know, I, I, I got my greatest education from Sissy Houston. I became a gospel piano player because of her. This Jewish girl from Long Island, you know, I sort of, I got some gospel chops playing with her. Because playing with her, I then started, was playing with, you know, Whitney, and then I was playing with B.B. Winans, I'm playing with C.C. Winans, I'm playing in church with her, she's bringing me to church, playing with her choir. I find myself now playing at Sweetwater's, which we're, we used to play at this club called Sweetwater's on the Upper West Side on Amsterdam Avenue. It was a great club back in the 70s. It was, it was a supper club. It was like an R&B supper club. That's where all the, all the R&B acts played. How much did your initial training in classical music help you through these transitions and different types of music that you've played? Because I hear... Tremendously. Tremendously. My classical, particularly in rock and roll, Particularly playing, particularly when I met the likes of, of, of people, writers that were writing class, like cl almost classical rock music. It's like I was able to, I, I took to that music because of, because of how classical it was. You know, it, it enabled me to use, um, you know, it was cl classically, classical har harmonically, it was classical. I was able to use classical technique in it um yeah that so i would say that you know the class classical music definitely helped me the most the most in rock and roll and then of course in jazz you know because of uh for harmonic reasons and technical reasons but i'm thinking like gospel music and all the great music that comes out of that i think the... that is that's this but was I... that easy to Get it to through your heart. Like, yes, I think so because I think that, I think that, um, I think I had a good soul for playing classical music. 
I don't think I was just reading notes on the page. I think that I, I, I was able to play classical music with more than just good technique and ab- ability to read. Right. And then do you, did you listen to a lot? And was there players that you heard that kind of you thought I should take note of how they play these songs? You mean classical players? More like, I'm thinking more in gospel. Like, I just don't know how easy it is to become a gospel piano player. Well, I listened to a lot of Richard T. I listened to a lot of, um, back then, like in the 80s, I listened to a lot of the Hawkins family. I got, I was, for some reason, I met people and I got, I met the right people. I tell, I'm telling you, it's like, it's good musicianship, but it's also luck. I got, I met people that turned me on to music that would, you know, then have a tremendous effect on my own playing. Right. Like I met, you know, I talk about Rick Murata. Rick Murata was really into Brazilian music. Rick Murata turned me on to a ton of Brazilian music, which is what, I, I have, a, to this day, I have an extreme love for that music. Um, I would listen to Richard T. I'd listen to stuff. I'd listen to Richard T. on all his on records, on Paul Simon records, on, on you know, all these records where he's playing in a gospel style. And I would emulate it, you know. Um, I would listen to Aretha play piano. I mean that she Aretha, Aretha was one of the greatest piano players ever mm-hmm. in my books. You know, and you played for her. I I, I have I've had the good fortune of playing for her on a couple of occasions. Were you ever intimidated by the people you played with? Well, I was definitely intimidated by Aretha Franklin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this you know, yeah, definitely. And I presume you would know at that point, but. It sounds like there were many moments in your life that you were on stage or in the recording studio with people who were just your heroes or your idols. And Well, I can't tell you how many times I stood on the stage. I mean, I, I played, I was on tour with Whitney for 11 and a half years. And I can't tell you how many times I stood on the stage and, and, I, and I was like saying to myself, pinch me. I'm playing for the greatest singer in the world. Well, how did I... How, how did I get here? I'm playing for the greatest, one of the top three entertainers of our time. <laughs> and it, yes, I'm, yeah, I mean, it, it was always like, how, how, did, how, what am I, what am I doing here? But once I'm there, you know, you, it's fear and intimidation is not going to make me play good. So you have to, it's kind of like, Get over it. Right. Well, I mean, the people you play with, there's obviously a reason why you're there because, because you deserve to be there. Well, thank you. It's hard for me to, to get that to that, but yes, I, I guess you know, you know, I mean, Whitney chose me. Right. And there were a lot of piano players in the world. You know, Whitney chose me. She was young though. She could have chosen. You know, maybe a few years later she would have met some other people, and she would. But she chose me. She knew me from playing with her mother. She loved my playing with her mother. Her, she would never, she didn't want to take me away from her mother. So when she actually went out, when the first record came out, you know, I did some gigs with her locally when she first broke out. I was with her 
I mean, I was with Whitney Hughes. I was playing with Whitney the night Whitney became Whitney. That was a great, um, you know, I talk about that in the movie, in her, in the movie Whitney. Um, the night that Sis, we were playing up at McKell's, which was just a few blocks up from where we are right now, 97th and Columbus. Uh, are you, were you aware of that club? No. Oh, it was the, like the, between 7th Avenue South and McKell's, the premier R&B clubs, R&B jazz clubs in New York. And uh, one night, Whitney, uh, Sissy, we were, I was playing up there with Sissy, and um, we were doing two nights. And the first night, Sissy told Whitney that she had a drip, that she couldn't sing. You're going to have to go on for me. And um, she did. And she blew the roof off the house. Off, I mean, it was adorable because she was like, she did all of like Sissy's raps and everything and all her little banter, the same as Sissy. But she sang like nobody's business. And that was the night that, that was the night that she became Whitney. Was she featured before? Like the way she did? Oh, yeah. She would part? feature, you know, they would be featured in, in like we used to play at Sweetwaters, you know. She would do a song here or there. I remember going and hearing her. When she was about 16, I went down to, somebody told me about her. My manager at the time, maybe. I had a manager for a little while when I was trying to get that deal that I got almost got in 1980. Um, said, you got to hear this girl sing. This was before, this was, you know, late 70s. Right. And uh, I went down to the bottom line, and there she was in this, like, little church dress. She was just like a little girl with this little fuzzy hair. And she sang, and it was it was like... Remember those? Remember that Memorex commercial with the guy sitting in yeah, the chair, yeah. and all of a sudden he gets blown back. That's how, that's how it was for me. It was she was I had her I had heard her before, and she was before I ever played with her. And so you knew that she I knew was, she was unbelievable. Yeah, there was no never any question that. But it doesn't always translate into stardom, right? Like you've probably worked with a lot of musicians who are amazing, who just for whatever reason didn't connect or just kind of missed the mark or whatever. Is that correct? Well, um... Or do you think talent of that magnitude, there's just no way of denying it? Well, I think talent of that magnitude, there is no way of denying it. I think there's a tremendous amount more talent out there that gets recognized, which is one of the reasons I kind of think that even though I don't watch them ever, I mean, I did in the beginning when like those all those Voice and the mm -hmm. American Idol and all those shows came out, I, I thought, you know, contrary to what other people believed, I thought they were, I think they're great. I think they're great because there are so many, and I don't think about it as like, oh, they didn't pay their dues. It's like, there are, they did pay dues before anybody, before they got up on that stage. They didn't get up on that stage. They didn't start singing the night they got up on that stage, you know? Sure. And I, you know, I believe that there's so much talent and I believe it is really difficult. There's not many slots out there for, <laughs> for every great singer and every great musician. They're just not. There are a lot of great musicians that are sitting in, you know, somewhere in o Omaha, you know, that never get discovered. And so I, I kind of, I'm like, you know, bravo. Let, let people, you know, it's another way for people to get, you know, to get heard. So it's hard. It's hard to get heard. I mean, I happen to live in a, new, in a big city. You know, there's only a couple of big cities in this country where there's actually a music scene, you know, a real music scene that you can find and, you know, and get yourself into, and whether it's like open mics or, or what, you know. So 
I'm, I'm a proponent of those. But it, also, it must be also difficult to live in New York and try to make it in New York. I don't know if you ever felt that since you've had success, but... Um, like, when I talked to Steve, Stephen Bernstein, he was I think talking. it's harder now than it was then. Right. Now there's... I mean, when I came up in this town in the 70s, there were... Ten times the amount of clubs to play in than there are now. There were clubs up here, west side, upper east side, midtown east side, west side, all over the you know, there, downtown, lower east side, lower west. I mean, everywhere. I would go from a gig on the upper west side that where I started at 11 o'clock, and I'd go down to the Paradise Garage and play a 3 a.m. set with some artist down there that, you know, whatever. But there were so many, there were so many opportunities to be, to play... So that's many, 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 many more musicians getting to go out and play every night. Many more musicians, many more singers. So I think it was a, a, an easier time. And I think a lot of musicians came out of New York. A lot of musicians came out of here. You have Madonna, Lady Gaga, Patti Smythe. You know, there, I mean, a, a lot of incredible, incredible, you know, artists that became very famous. Whitney Houston, that became very famous, came out of New York. Right. And I think it has to do with just being, you know, being able, being heard. But I, when I talked to Stephen about it, he, he said, you also have to be really, really good or else there's too much competition. Well, I mean, that's, was he talking about then or now? He was talking about in jazz, then. Just that you had to have your act together. Well, I would have to say in jazz now, too. I, I think that, like, I think that there's a younger population of jazz musicians now than there were back then even you know I you know I don't think that I mean there were you know there were Berkeley players but I just think that jazz has be, has evolved into a, a hipper younger genre than than it was say you know like in the 70s when you know you went and you saw the greats, you know you went and saw Bill Evans, and you went and saw Wayne Shorter, and you went and saw you know these were ast- older as well. Although they weren't as you know they were not old then. They certainly right. were not, but they weren't twenty when we were in our seventies. They weren't twenty, so you know they weren't just fresh out of college. You know I don't think we got to, you know we got to see. I remember when I was growing up, I got to already see the greats play. You know, they were established already. Whereas now, I think, I just think that there's, you know, there, jazz has evolved into a much broader genre of music than it was because now there's, it's not just straight ahead jazz. Now, you know, you've got that whole LA jazz thing, you know, CD 101.9 and, you know, and, and the, uh, Whatever that's whatever that is called. Well, if we go back to the time when you pursued a solo career, I'm not sure if it's a solo career, if but you blink, you miss it. <laughs> <laughs> but when when it didn't happen, were you disappointed by that? No, because you were still in demand doing. No, I was. You know, it was. I, I you know, I, 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 I never really. I never believe, really believed in myself as an artist. I, again, let's talk about Dick Wagner, who, besides the Jim Curry and these other artists that I worked with with him and with Michael, Dick and I wrote songs for me. Right. 
And so we wrote a show for me. We basically wrote a show for me. And, you know, he probably had more more confidence than I did, you know, in myself, you know, in me than I did, you know. Um, so we wrote this show. And um, I couldn't have written that without him. You know, I wasn't... He was much more of an, you know, evolved, iconic songwriter at that time already. Um, but we wrote a show. We wrote a rock and roll show. And then when that was done, it was like, okay, that's it. You know, it was like, I went to... They, I almost got signed. Bobby Columbia from Capitol Records brought me out to L.A. to play for my choice producer, who would have been David Foster at the time. He came. We all went... I played at Capitol, Capitol Records out there. Rupert Perry, the you know head of Capitol at the time, and... Um, Bruce Garfield was there and David Foster and um, they allowed me to bring one musician I brought Mark Rivera who was in my band who's the sax player for Billy Joel yeah. who was a dear friend of mine and we he and I played in a ton of bands growing up coming up in in, uh, in the 70s and um, it just it didn't happen for one reason or the other and and that was the end and then you know and then I think I continued to write um, and sing, but I think as a solo art, I mean, that I was never a rock and roll singer. Never. Dick thought I was a rock and roll singer. I'm not a rock and roll singer. I'm a soul singer. I'm a, like a white, white kind of soul singer. And I think that um, I always thought that I if, I, if I had to put myself in a category, it would have been along the lines of what Bonnie Raitt was doing. And I thought that she was so far superior to me that who cared? about little old me, and I never pursued it. Um, it wasn't even a disappointment. No, because I was so much more into playing. For, I was, because I was, this, I was a player. You know, I mean, I, was, I had a career as a, at a, as a player. I was, right. a, you know, I, I, I made money as a piano player, as a keyboard player. You know, I was doing jingles, I was doing, you know, sessions. So it wasn't like I was, you know, it was, it was that or bust, you know, it was like, perhaps, you know, I, I, I didn't have nearly the passion for artistry, you know, solo artistry as people that I was playing for, you know, they would, these people would beg, borrow and steal to pay me $60 or $70 to play a set with them, you know, I, I wouldn't. <laughs> You know, you know, I just didn't care that that's not was I didn't consider myself. I was writing songs, but never really considered myself a writer. Although I wrote some, you know, I've got some songs covered by great some great artists. But for some reason, I mean, now I'm writing again. As a matter of fact, after we finish, I'm I'm writing with a, a young guy who, you know, we're we're doing a submission for a K-pop artist. So. Um, so maybe I've always been hoping that the writing would that I would get back into it. All, that all sort of ceased when I when I was working with Bette Midler. Is writing difficult or easy for you? It's writing's hard. Writing is hard. I mean, I can. I have a strong voc a strong musical vocabulary, and sometimes that's you know, that's not an asset. You know, sometimes that isn't necessarily a good thing. It's like, you know, people, sometimes people write better songs with fewer choices. Right, okay. You know, and sometimes I think my knowledge, you know, 
is a hindrance, you know, of a good pop song because I get too um, caught up in harmony when great melodies are written around, can be written around simple harmony, three, four chords, great melodies. And I think that, you know, like this, this particular song that we're writing, I think that we're trying to do that in this particular tune that we're writing today. We're going to finish today, but... Um, and you said it's K-pop. For K-pop, yeah. Okay. Like, it amazes me just the, the different genres that you cover. And I guess, I guess what you learned early on was that there really is no difference between one genre and the other. Well, I mean, K-pop is a... I, do I know a lot about K-pop? No, it's pop. Yeah. It's you know it's based on Korean you know pop bands. That's that's what that's all it is. It just has a name now. It's just Korean pop bands, and it's not. And honestly, it's not like the references that they gave us are nothing new. What? Nothing new. It's more. It's almost a little like you know. It's sort of a, it's a little it's a little a little bit sappy, you know. Simple, it's pop music. You know, but. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be. I probably wouldn't be submitting for a, writing for the K-pop artist if I wasn't writing with a twenty-two-year-old, who is a you know who is a, a writer now, and he's like busy writer, you know, trying to get cuts and writing with a lot of great people, and he's a very talented kid, and um, and he called me and he says, you know, you want to write this with me, and uh, um, my manager wants to submit a couple of things and. I'm writing with a couple of people, and I'd love to write. You know, you and I have been talking about writing something, and let's give it a try. And we started it the other day, and we came up with something great, I thought. So, wow. so I mean, I hope that I... What I mean, the whole the whole you know process of writing has changed so much from when I was first writing. I was When I first was writing, like, in the 90s, early 90s, say, you could write and submit to producers. Now, producers are writing with the artists. There's so much less in the submission, you know, outside submissions than there used to be. So I just sort of, I, I sort of, I stopped writing. You know, I was writing, you know, I would write for Bette Miller shows. You know, we wrote, I wrote the opening number for our last show in Vegas, The Showgirl Must Go On. Wrote a couple of, a couple of other pieces for the show. Um, but that was the extent of my writing in the, in the recent in you know recent years, I just I stopped writing, and I I regret that, I do regret it, because it's like anything else. The more you do it, the better you are at it. So now I feel though maybe I got lucky the other day with coming up with a good melody, and you know I don't see any reason why I should be writing a well crafted song right now, having not written a, a song <laughs> in a long time. You know, I'm a little hard on myself, but. That's who else is going to be. But that's, I would presume that's part of what makes you good. Like if you weren't hard on yourself, then maybe you wouldn't be as good as you are. I, yes and no. Yes and no. If I was not so hard on myself, I would be a better self promoter. I would be, I wouldn't, I would, I would put myself in situations then that I don't. But do you think maybe because so many situations came to you in the past? Yeah, that I'm not trained at getting mm. them myself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I, you know, I, a lot of, I never had a manager. I never had an agent, you know. Um, 
I regret. Well, I did have a manager for a little while when I was trying to get that record deal back in 1980. And was it of any help? Because I hear different stories. Having a manager? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only help it was was that she made the she knew all the record companies, and so she did all that work. You know, and like so, so much time has elapsed since I was doing that. I don't really know people in. I don't know the A and R guys, and you know, I don't know the people as much. Right. You know, when you get out, when you start playing live and not working in the studio, you lose touch with a lot of people. And, and that, I mean, changes now. You know, the A&R people, I mean, I remember the A&R people when I was in in my 30s, say, you know, 30s and 40s. I remember who they were. Now they're like young, you know, now they're half my age. But most of them, I mean, there is, you know, one can argue whether there's a real music business as it used to be. You know, I mean, there's still a music business, but it's... This tiny thing. It's a tone. It's a you know, and it's a totally different, and it's a totally different thing. And you know, I've, I mean, I've had an you know, one of the issues that I, I mean, I've had my issues with the business as far as, you know, defending my adult contemporary friends and artists who got have gotten completely overlooked for the last fifteen years because of the change in you know the changing of the guard. Mm-hmm. In the sense that, you know, now you have, this is before, let's say, like the present no music business era. Like, let's go back, say, 12, 13 years ago when there was still somewhat of a music business and you had 25 year olds trying to, you know, you have artists like a Patty, a Patty uh, Austin or a Jeffrey Osborne, all these incredible singers who deserve to be making records and making music and making money at their craft. Right. But because you have, you know, well, this, is, this is a whole other issue. I can yeah. you know, I can go off on, but you know, I mean, I they didn't. You know, they were they they couldn't do anything for a long time because there was nobody that knew what to do with them. If they were too fat, they, you know, it was everything was became like you know in the whole MTV era. You know, it was very appearance oriented. So if you were a heavy set, I mean, like before, I mean, Patty Austin was never a thin, beautiful thing until now you know now I mean she was always beautiful but she was kind of a chubby woman and the greatest singer on the planet not but you know but not but visually a 25 year old doesn't know what the hell to do with her right so so she doesn't get to do anything you wrote songs for her too right she recorded one of my songs I had this one song that got recorded by a, a song of mine called somebody make me laugh which is one of the one of the first songs as an adult that I wrote, honestly. Um, and uh, I wrote it with a woman named Tara Cox. And um, it was recorded by Patty that uh, Lee Rittenauer produced. It was recorded by an artist named David Broza, who is a, an Israeli artist um, who I met back in 1985. He came over, he first had come over here from Israel and um, I was hired to play on his first rec- American record. And so I ended up not being able to do the session because my father died. And then I went in like a week later and recorded the whole record in one day by myself, you know, just overdubbed the whole record. But anyway, David and I became great friends and David recorded the song. And then Bob and Hillary James recorded the song. So um, What's that like to have something you wrote and then have multiple people 
think of it worth recording. It's thrilling. It's thrilling. I wish it was, I wish it had been as thrilling as it, I wish it was as thrilling as coming off the stage playing with somebody and like killing. Like playing, like, like doing a song with, you know, Bette Midler at some great event and killing. Or like doing some something with Whitney and just like we played it and it killed. And that to me is like, you know, playing a great set of music is like, that is thrilling to me. And that was more thrilling than, I guess, had to have been more thrilling or else I would have pursued it more, right? Right. I mean, that's how I look at it. I, I mean, I you do what you want, what you, what, you know, what, what you're, what you direct yourself to do, you know. And, and I was much more thrilled being a, uh, um, a, a piano player. But more than a piano player, I mean, in both of those cases, you were the musical director. Yeah. So it's quite a bit more responsible. I, I mean, something that's a way more responsibility to those facts. What do you think it was about you that you were chosen by these three people? To be, to be their, their music- musical director? Yeah. I'm a really, really well-trained psychologist at this point. <laughs> I think it's, you know, I, I really think that, um, you know, like I worked with Carl, when I got back from Vegas with Bet, I worked with Carly Simon for a little while. Another great diva, you know, crazy in her own right. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> Love her to tears. And, and why only women? Any idea? Um, well, I didn't only. I, I did work with Michael Franks. Okay. I, I did work with Michael. Um, I worked with David Broza. I worked with Jim Naughton. Um, well, I think that a women are really comfortable with women. I think that. Um, you know, like I was recommended to bet from Mark by Mark Shaman. So I, I think that when Mark Shaman, the person that you revere more in the world than anybody, which was really the case with Bet at that time, and when she was getting ready to move back from L.A. after the big earthquake in the 90s, um, he said, that just there's only one person to call Bet Sussman. You need to know Bet Sussman. You need to bet Sussman needs to be your... Piano player. She needed a. She was putting a. Uh, she was doing a show. She was coming back to New York. She was doing her Halloween and which was her big Hall- Halloween event that she does every year. And um, and we sat and we talked and. Uh, you know, she liked me. You know, I had my concept of music is that music is fun. It's joy. It's not rocket science. You know. And did you connect immediately? Yes, Bet Bet and I connected immediately. I have to say. We really did. When I look at you all, and there's, there's multiple, there's, I guess that's multiple platinum. Yes. Um, Whitney Houston, the Bodyguard soundtrack. Yeah. When you hear that song that you played on, what do you think of? Like, where does it take you? It's, you know, I mean, it's... <coughs> How come I didn't play on more of her records? Maybe. <laughs> How 
Technically, that's the only record that she ever made that I made, that I played on. Um, yeah, that's another thing that's kind of you know I think about I do think about that with her. It's like you know producers are very producers have their own camps, and, right? You know you don't often get to be in there. We you know she requested her band to be in the movie. The scene that 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 I will I will always love you was in. She wanted her band. She wanted to do it live with her band. So they agreed. They brought us down, and I always thought they had. They took one look at us and said, "Nah, maybe not. Maybe we'll just record them." <laughs> but um, that's um. I I mean I, I'm I'm pretty thrilled that I'm on like you know one of the eighteen million or something uh, most iconic rec- pop records. You know you know, but like I wish there were more. You know I mean I wish there were more. I wish my recording career had been greater I spent a lot of time on the road I spent a lot of time on the road so I think that um, I didn't spend as much time in the studio but you did a lot of session work I presume I, you still do I did well you know now this there isn't a lot of session work okay in New York anyway there isn't a ton of session work but you did a lot of session I did work. a lot of session work yeah I did. And does that... Do but it those... wasn't always records. It was, you know, I mean, it was records, but it was a lot of a lot of jingles. You know, this was the jingle capital of the world right, right. here in New York. So I, I did a shit ton of jingles. But your list of credits on recordings is nothing to sneeze at. It's pretty impressive. You know, compared to other people that I know and I work with, it's, you know, that's it's nothing. <laughs> well, no, it's not nothing. Okay, well, now you're learning a little bit about me, my insecurities. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, I, you know, I look at I look at my friends, you know, people that I that I play music with, that I've played music with for, through the years, you know, whether it's Huey McCracken, who was my best friend, and or Will Lee, and you know, it's like you know, their credits are just like you know, mm-hmm. I don't have that, but. When you get to to state where you you're doing so much session work, is it just a job? Like it's quite different than your relationship with Whitney or your relationship with Bet. When they call you and say we need a piano player, we need to record this, these two songs on Thursday. Well, it's a job. Yes, it certainly is a job, but that it doesn't take away, it doesn't negate the 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 passion that I have for doing my job. Right. Well. I still want them to call me the next time. So, you know, I take it, you know, everybody's job is this, is equal to the other. You know, nobody's is more or less important. Right. So I try and do my best no matter what I'm doing. So I guess, you know. So if you look back on, I'm going to wrap this up, but when you look back on this amazing career, or what I think is an amazing career. Thank you. I, it's a, I've had a I've had a very great I have a great career. Right. Okay. I don't want I don't want to go away saying thinking that I'm you know that I don't I do I've had a fantastic career and continue to have, you know, not retiring anytime soon. You still have the same passion that you always had. I do. And it still excites you the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I just this you know it's just. You know the work is not as plentiful. There's there's a whole new 
you know, there's a whole new group of people that have come up. I mean, mm -hmm. I have watched it. You know, like I say, I'm. I feel blessed that I came up and I got. I, I came up in the '70s and I came up playing. You know, the greatest music. You know, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, but you know, then I think, and I think because I'm such a young person of my age, um, the fact that there are the young younger ones that are doing the gigs that I was doing in the you know back you know 20, 15, 20, 20 years ago. It's like, mm, I want to be doing, why are they calling me? You know, it's like, there's a little bit of, uh, not animosity, it's just, you know, I'm happy, I'm, I'm happy that there's great musicians and, you know, I wish there was more work. But you also start your own projects, like the cabaret shows that you did. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that I'm super interested in, you know, like, um, is at this point now is actually... Doing, doing, doing more work featuring as a featured vocalist, because I have been singing for years, and I really, you know, that doing that the, these couple of shows that Elaine Caswell, that picture up there, that's our, that was our promo shot. Elaine is uh, she was she's my partner in crime. We've had a rock and roll band for twenty years called the Bev Leslies, and and we have this we put this Beauty and Labiche thing together about about seven years ago, and um, just reunited to do the seven-year bitch after not performing for seven years and it's it's com because it's it's got comedy and it's singing and it's playing and you know and it sort of gives me the chance to do a lot of things that I love to do so I would say if anything I'm going to lean in that in that direction now because I think that's a way that I could work more mm -hmm. also as you know as con continue working as a as a you know as an artist and not worry about making records and selling records. But would you record them? Maybe. Don't go out and play live. I mean, I love, my favorite thing is to play live. Yeah. I love playing live. I mean, I like sitting here and putting around and recording, but my favorite thing is to play live. So, although I have to say that I really, you know, speaking of, you talk about the you know, Chris and the Blues Foundation, and, you know, making, the making of Chris Chris's record was, more fun than a barrel of monkeys. I mean, that was, first of all, playing, you know, getting to be in the studio with Jimmy Vivino again. You know, I haven't gotten to record with Jimmy in a million years, and we used to just play a, a shit ton together, you know, before he moved out to the West Coast with Conan. And Will, Lee, and I are best of friends and play music together whenever we can. So the I and Sean Pelton, who is also the uh, the greatest drummer on the planet, and also is the drummer in our band, the, the Bev Leslies, the, oh, okay. my rock and roll band? Um, get, for the four of us going in there to play, it was and just recording everything live was. Oh my god, it was so much fun. We had such a good time creating that record. We really created those tracks. You know, they were very. Very unusually done, and um, and it was a joy to a joy to do. Lord knows, I wish there was more of that. You know? If I remember correctly, though, you kind of had a lot to do with Chris following that, right? Did you not I, just kind of walk into a bar? I, I I mean, I you know, I definitely mentored Chris a little bit. You know, I don't want to take the credit, but you know, he was a Chris is an incredibly hard worker. Mm -hmm. You know, once he decided to do something. You know, like even on, on his harmonica playing and his singing, I said, Chris, you just need to go out and do it. You just need to go out and do it. And he found some guy, you know, that had like a little personality, piano player guy. And they went, he went across the street from his, you know, flaming saddles and, you know, and started playing at that bar. 
you know, and um, by himself with this guy, and then I'd show up maybe and sing some backgrounds or play some tambourine or whatever. But um, so I guess you could say, in a way, I uh, I I sort of helped push that along a little yeah. bit. Well, I think he said that you, you walked in one day and kind of encouraged him. And we started writing some, and we wrote some songs yeah. together um, that were hilariously, you know, great songs. He's a wonderful lyricist. Um, yeah, so that was a you know that was a blast. That was a blast. So I was going to wrap up before. I'm going to wrap up now. Okay. But um, I want to thank you because it's thank you. When I heard you, I thought I want to meet this person. Oh, that's a year later so I get nice the chance you. to do this, and it means a great deal to me. Um, how would you summarize what you've this journey you've taken in music? Uh, it's better than uh, selling shoes. <laughs> Um, it's a, it's, it's an incredible journey. I mean, I've, I've gotten, um, I've gotten to travel the world. I mean, literally travel the world. Multiple times. Multiple times. Um, respected by a lot of people that I have a lot of respect for. I've gotten to play with, I mean, I got to play with Ella Fitzgerald. I got to play with Nancy Wilson. I got to play with Frank Sinatra. I got, I've gotten to play through all the different connections that I've made and different genres that I've worked in. I mean, I used to do a ton of work with the guy that I told you about, the record that I produced, uh, the keyboard record, Glenn Rovin. He brought me in. We used to do all these TV shows. And um, so I got to these variety shows out in L.A. So I got to play with, you know, an enormous amount of people. And I've gotten to meet my idols. It's kind of a fairy... It's, it's sort of a fairy tale job, you know. It's like sort of something that I did and you know it's it's that very cliche is that I get to get I get paid for what I would do for nothing you know it's what I've always done and would be doing anyway even if they didn't give me money thank you so much for doing this thank you for asking me to do it I appreciate it